You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, this is Rob. Just wanted to let you know that on this show we get into spoilers and I forgot to tell you. So I just wanted to let you know up front, if you haven't had a chance to see Idiocracy yet, you can just turn it off and come back because we'll be here waiting for you. Thanks. It talks like a fine too. <laughs> Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Our first subject for the human hibernation experiment. As you know, this is highly classified. However, if successful, we believe humans can be stored indefinitely. However, the trial run was prone to human error. See you in a year. And Joe slept slightly longer than expected. Half a millennium, to be exact. From Mike Judge, creator of Office Space and Beavis and Butthead. Oh my God! If you were the smartest person in the world... This goes in your mouth. This one goes in your butt. Hang on a second. This one, this one goes in your mouth. And we're stuck with the dumbest people in history. If you have one bucket that holds two gallons and another bucket that holds five gallons, how many buckets do you have? Two? What would you do? Excuse me, um, I'm actually supposed to be getting out of prison. You're in the wrong line. I'm the smartest guy in the world? Says who? The IQ test you took in prison. You got the highest score in history. You've been smarter than President Camacho. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of America! In the year 2505. We got this guy. He's gonna fix everything. So you smart, huh? The ordinary will be considered extraordinary. I thought your hair would be bigger. Idiocracy. For the smartest guy in the world, you're pretty dumb sometimes. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Joining me, of course, Mr. Mike White. I've got electrolytes. I bet you do. And joining us this week is our good friend, Jeff Watrick. How you doing? Glad to be here. Thank you, sir. Well, this week we're talking about Idiocracy, the 2006 film from writer-director Mike Judge. Is de-evolution the future? If it is, it might look something like this. The film tells the tale of Joe Bowers, played by Luke Wilson, who is a military employee judged to be the most average man on base. He was only supposed to be frozen for a year, along with a street prostitute played by Maya Rudolph. But something goes wrong, he wakes up 500 years in the future, only to find out that now being average makes you a genius. Judge's film is a pointed satire and cautionary tale not only about a society that embraces anti-intellectualism, but corporatizing everything it can get its hands on. So, as our guest, Jeff, what was the first time you saw Idiocracy, and what did you think? I think it was about 2007, 2008, right after uh, it had come onto video, because it lasted, what, about 30 seconds in the theater. And as with Judge's previous stuff, I was 
really impressed with the, the the nuance of the the theme that he put into this. I mean, from a guy who started with fart jokes on Beavis and Butthead, he's clearly a, a much more uh, intelligent ca- comic than that. Um, and I think this is just part of that tradition. What about you, Mr. White? I remember I was up in uh, Toronto at the time when this came out because it only came out in like 130-some theaters across North America when it did. I was unable to see it up there, but I really wanted to. It was uh, It's kind of a sad thing with Judge's work because the same kind of thing happened with Office Space, if memory serves. So I was right there picking it up on video when it finally came out on VHS, and or it might have been DVD by this time. And I have to say, I didn't really like it the first time I saw it, but it's kind of grown on me over the years. I remember when it was going to be released, and there was a series of articles that were written about the movie that Fox didn't want you to see. And it led to all of this sort of conspiracy as to, well, they spent all this money on the film. Why are they holding it back? What's so awful about this movie? And there was some um, some writing on it saying, well, you know, it's Fox, and of course it's Rupert Murdoch, and therefore it's, you know, they're a little more conservative and... What Judge is doing here is sort of showing up certain things, including Fox News in the film, and um, figured that maybe it was a uh, a political statement they felt that uh, the company wasn't too happy with and was trying to bury. Now, well, at least they released it in some form, and I think I agree with you, uh, much like Office Space, it did really find its legs on video, which is eventually where I had the chance to see it. So getting into the plot, um, I kind of encapsulated it at the top is Luke Wilson plays Joe Bowers. He's uh, basically a uh, librarian or something on this base. And he's chosen for this experiment to be frozen and um, just thought out a year later. But uh, things move rather quickly in the opening part of this film. Uh, Actually, before we even meet Bowers, though, there's sort of this, uh, I guess we would say, prologue on how sort of the, the world gets to where the world eventually gets. That prologue, to me, is one of the best parts of the movie. I absolutely love this whole idea of how we get to be where we're at, where we have this fairly smart couple, you know, Trevor with an IQ of 138, and I think it's Carol with 141 IQ, and how they are, you know, we're going to wait for children, and we're going to take our time and, you know, do our careers and everything and get prepared first versus the other family where it's just kids popping up and popping out all over the place. Having kids is such an important decision. We're just waiting for the right time. It's not something you want to rush into, obviously. No way. Oh shit, I'm pregnant again! I got too many damn kids! Thought you was on the pill or some shit! Hell no! Brittany. Brittany? There's no way we could have a child now. Mm-mm. Not with the market the way it is, no. God, no. That just wouldn't make any sense. It's not subtle commentary whatsoever, but it's very pointed. Yeah, it also seems to be one of the more controversial uh, parts of the film, at least among critics. I personally think a lot of the criticism of it is, is valid in terms of eugenics or whatever, but it also sort of misses the point, which is how do you tell the world tell the audience within two minutes that how society is going to devolve to this point. And this is a very sort of simple shorthanded way of doing it, that as long as you don't take it literally as this is what's actually going on in the world, it's not an owner's manual, if you will, then it, the controversy seems um, unnecessary. 
And it's also, I think no one could take it as an owner's manual and a serious take because it just gets absurd. Just the absurdism piles on and on, especially as you look at, there's like the chart up in the corner, right? the family tree chart, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing, and it just gets more and more <laughs> ridiculous you know, as it the, goes. The part, the part about it I'd forgotten until I rewatched it was when he, uh, the, the redneck guy, impales his genitals on a, a post somehow, and then there's a doctor explaining how... Cleavon is lucky to be alive. He attempted to jump a jet ski from a lake into a swimming pool and impaled his crotch on an iron gate. But thanks to recent advances in stem cell research and the fine work of doctors Krensky and Altschuler, Cleavon should regain full reproductive function. Hands off my junk! I think that that was just such a brilliant little moment. Like, even this guy's best efforts to stop procreating, modern science manages to, you know, help him out. Yes, we're all about prolonging life. And uh, what's the thing they say later on about... Uh, maintaining hair uh, or stopping hair loss and maintaining erections. Right. It also kind of goes to, I I think the the cynicism that some people have about science at times where it seems like, Oh, you guys did a study on that, but, or you're now creating, all right, Viagra, but you can't cure cancer yet. You're like, what's going on over there? There's a moment just to jump ahead where he's in the, the future hospital and they're using like this diagnostic booth and, Watching, I was thinking this film's about three years too early or about five years too early because that booth looks like a giant iPhone with the the buttons all around it. And that is sort of the the hubris of of modern technology is we're we're making crap that is of no use, of no real use while garbage avalanches pile up um, in the film or, you know, in real life, the planet's overheating. I mean, I won't come out and say that I'm in favor of sterilization of stupid people. But let's just say that when idiots go out onto Lake St. Clair in April and May and they're trying to ice fish out there and then it costs them $35,000 to save these idiots as they float away on ice ice blocks, I kind of think that maybe we should save the money and let Darwinism take over. Especially when those are usually the same people complaining about like how much education costs them and you know their, their taxes are too high because schools. You know, schools. What are those? <laughs> Shut up. He talks like a fag, too. <laughs> Go away, Baton. <laughs> they get frozen for a year. The garbage avalanches pile up. Well, the garbage piles up in the future. It's 500 years later. We see how everyday things change from things that we know today to uh, what they'll be known 500 years from now, which I especially love with the um, the, the signs of companies and especially the, the, the Fuddruckers hamburgers. <laughs> Yeah, we know from Office Space that Mike Judge is not a fan of these uh, chain restaurants at all. So going from Fuddruckers to Buttfuckers is pretty good. <laughs> well, th- th- this one of the things that amazes me in this film is like how many brand names there are in it and how he can get away with it. Because there's Starbucks, there's Costco, there's Carl's Jr., there's Fuddruckers, you know, Mountain Dew, all of this stuff, Pepsi. And I was like, I, I know that like legal, whenever you put a logo in your in your film, there's all this legal stuff that you have to clear. And I was watching, and I know you're a huge fan of his stuff, um, Jeff, uh, Alex Jones's interview with Mike Judge, which uh, you can find <laughs> at our website, 
because it, it's worth it just to watch. And he talks about that in there and said that legal originally said that, okay, well, you have Starbucks in here and we're a little nervous about that, but could you make fun of more people? Because like the, like the legal department felt that if you made fun of a broad range of stuff, it would be harder for them to be sued than if they only picked one target. Well, I know there's a certain amount of, of parody use that you can do where – um, and I was talking to Mike about this before the show was in part, it was the Flint Falwell case in the eighties before the Supreme court and the Campari ad where you can do satire and parody as long as it can never be misconstrued that you're, you're using it in the correct manner. Meaning that, you know, if it was just Starbucks that was in here and they're serving coffee, then that would be, people could get confused with the fact that it's Starbucks that has hand jobs people aren't going to be confused by that. They're two different things. That's interesting. I I always assumed that there was some sort of product placement arrangement because why else would you use Carl's Jr. instead of McDonald's or Costco instead of Walmart? But uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Carl's Jr. taking away your kid was just funnier. Please come back when you can afford to make a purchase. Your kids are starving. Carl's Jr. believes no child should go hungry. You are an unfit mother. Your children will be placed in the custody of Carl's Jr., Carl's Jr. Fuck you. I'm eating. The thing that's funny about Carl's Jr. in some of these maybe placements, I'm not sure because I haven't read or seen too many interviews with Mike Judge about it. And when we, and you'll hear in the interview later uh, with Luke Wilson, he didn't know either. He didn't know how he got away with all of the brands. Is that Carl's Jr., if you remember over the last several years, their ads have been rather risque and kind of playing to the bro crowd. And for them to be in this film almost kind of seems like a direct line out of their marketing, especially when we're talking about, you know, what was it, five years or so ago, the whole Paris Hilton on the car eating the big hamburger thing that got all that attention. Sure. And, of course, the other thing is the the product that was created from this movie, Brondo, is actually a a real thing now. Yeah, there's a guy who creates – products based out of products that are fake that are in movies so i think he's the same guy who, who you can now get brando from and he also does uh, stay puff marshmallows and even uh soylent green crackers if you would like those as well mm. just all of the sort of over commercialism in the film uh you notice that a lot of the clothing is just like People wear logoed shirts and, and stuff like that now, but not to the not to the point I think where when we meet Dax Shepard's character Frito, he's basically wearing what looks like wallpaper <laughs> of ads on his clothes. Yeah, it's kind of a NASCAR chic in the future. We're all we're all race car drivers with fifty million sponsorships. Brought yeah. to you by Carl's Jr. <laughs> Why do you keep saying that? Because they pay me every time I do. It's a really good way to make money. <laughs> You're so smart, why don't you know that? <laughs> so when the garbage avalanche happens and the – basically, I guess they look kind of like these coffins where they've been uh, in suspended animation. One crashes into, as I mentioned, Dax Shepard's apartment where he appears to be watching uh, TV and sitting in a really big uh, Lazy Boy Barker lounger kind of thing. And this is where we get like the first view of how, I guess – the more upper echelon people live because we soon learn that Frito is an attorney. So I guess he would be one of the more smarter people in this, uh, you know, uh, 500 years in the future. I thought it was uh, kind of interesting to have a guy like Dak Shepard, who, what was it? Punked was his first big thing sitting there watching like this completely inane show about a guy getting punched in the balls. Next on the violence channel, an all new Alma. <laughs> 
Which wasn't far off from what punked was. I just thought that was a great little ironic moment. Whether it was intentional or not, I don't know. Well, and then the whole, I mean, ow my balls is basically what America's Funniest Home Videos is. You know, just (laughs) one excuse after another to see somebody taking it in the nuts. And I've also heard uh, that people said that he was kind of making fun of Jackass, which for me, I actually like Jackass. I'm sorry to say. I never got into that one. That just seems like just to watch people hurt themselves. I don't just does not seem fun to me. But I went to see Jackass the movie as a joke, and I ended up actually really liking it. And so much so that I went to see Jackass 2 when it came out, like first weekend kind of thing. But I never really got into the television show. So I just appreciate some of the more, I don't know, um, off-putting pranks, especially like Johnny Knoxville pulling up in his car at a gas station with blood all over the hood and asking to use the hose to clean it off and just pushing people on those different levels. Though I know there's supposed to be a documentary out about how mean-spirited some of those shows are behind the scenes, and I'm very curious about that. You know, the other thing is you see later in the film the guy from Ow My Balls, and he, he, in the parlance of the film, quote, talks like a fag. And I thought that was also interesting that here is this guy doing this incredibly inane TV show. He's a big star, but he's maybe one of the three or four smart people left on the planet. But he's been reduced to getting kicked in the balls to pay his rent. But isn't that showbiz? (laughs) (laughs) True. You know, you have these great actors who have studied Shakespeare and are great dramatists who are doing just inane sitcoms. (laughs) They're playing Magneto. What? Exactly. So... Frito's watching Ow My Balls, and there's this, like, everything is brightly colored, it's multi-screened, and he, uh, as, as Joe wakes up from the suspended animation, like the coffin opens up, or whatever you want to say, and he starts talking to him, like, hey, you know, where am I, what's going on, and this is where we get our first hint of the the language, and what I was thinking about with the language, which, of course, in Blade Runner is much more artful, the quote-unquote city-speak, this blend of languages, uh, in here, it just seems like <laughs> it's it's a blend of real uh, devolved grunts and groans. But the English language had deteriorated into a hybrid of hillbilly, valley girl, inner city slang, and various grunts. Joe was able to understand them, but when he spoke in an ordinary voice, he sounded pompous and faggy to them. I have to recommend if folks watch this with the closed captions on, it really even adds more to it because you get to see some of the more butchered words because you can kind of hear that they're not saying these words right, but then to look at them and see how they're being spelled and everything. I mean, especially when he's uh, later on, spoilers, escaping from jail and it's it, the closed captions say literally escape, escape, you know, <laughs> like EX. There's a little, there's a Jack in the Box ad somewhere. It's just a little sight gag, and it, and it re, but instead of saying Jack in the Box, it reads Jack in a Box, and it's just like on screen for like about half a second. But yeah, it's exactly that. That to me is less interesting in terms of language than some of the more like incorrect, overly formal use you see, um, particularly from the cops. Okay, sir. Now we will begin to proceed to obtain your IQ and aptitude tests. What for? Okay, sir. This is to figure out what your aptitude's good at 
and get you a jail job while you're being a particular individual in jail. That sounds formal and official, but it's actually just terrible, terrible English versus sort of the, the slang that becomes normal, which is just say what you will about it. But that's just part of the English language and always has been. But I do see this a lot in regular in, in normal time in real life that people try to sort of dress up their language with this overly formal verbiage that's usually wrong or at least clunky. Um, and I give, I guess I give hats off to Mike Judge for getting that part right. And where that kind of sounds to me, to my ear, is the Coen brothers. And the Coen brothers are particular on doing this, and they've been doing it as far back as Raising Arizona. And it's very heavy in in their more screwball comedies, where they have people who aren't that bright using big words to make themselves sound more intelligent, but they end up sounding dumber. What's his name? Vernon D. Waldrop. Uncle Vernon. Till tomorrow, then he's going to be daddy. I am the only daddy you got. I am the damn paterfamilias. But you ain't bona fide. Well, I went from idiocracy yesterday right into uh, lady killers. So that whole speech pattern of Tom Hanks in there, which is very similar to Clooney's from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Just saying all these words and meaning absolutely nothing. So yeah, I'm right on board with what you're saying. So when he ends up at the hospital, he meets... uh I guess another person who could be considered one of the more intelligent individuals in the society, of course, a doctor, right? So, but you notice everyone's names are all based on brands. So he's Dr. Lexus. You've had Frito, the uh, the other character. And um, just sort of his run-in with the idea of, it seems like everything's been socialized to the point where it's like the worst conspiracy theory come true where you now have a tattoo and the tattoo pays for everything yeah it's very mark of the beast <laughs> which i'm sure alex jones loves yeah the that i gotta say i was a little really disappointed when when you found that alex jones mike judge interview it's just sort of like a stake through the heart as someone who's such a big mike judge fan to see him at least mildly sympathetic to alex jones craziness because let's be honest, Alex Jones' craziness is what's going to lead to idiocracy. Just FYI, we did ask Mr. Judge for an interview, and we were were turned down. So just putting that out there. So Alex Alex Jones rates higher than the projection booth on the food chain. Well, I think it's because they're both in Austin, so I think that might be part of it. From the interview, it sounds like Judge did the interview with him to a certain extent, not really agreeing with a lot of his stuff, but found him to be an entertaining local gadfly who was... uh, He talks about at one point how he had this videotape of him from the uh, cable access show that he used to have in Austin and used like his voice or mannerism or something for characters in King of the Hill. Nice. Yeah, I can see that. Richard Linkletter has that same sort of affinity for Alex Jones. It's like, I'm not really agreeing with you, but your local color, I guess. I guess it would be like people liking, um, trying to think if there was a similar in Detroit when we were kids. Um, you know, I mean, the, the only one from a political standpoint would have been someone like a Donald Lopsinger, but he wasn't really a media personality. So no. it, would, it would be like, I don't know, like someone really being into soupy sales. Yeah. But if he was like a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> who's to say that soupy sales wasn't a conspiracy theorist? <laughs> What do you think White Fang and Blacktooth are really saying? It's, it's, it's the, the race war. Race war. <laughs> okay, here. Go get him! Go get him! Go get him! Go get him! So 
I forgot that Justin Long was the doctor in here. He does a, a really good, stupid guy. Well, don't want to sound like a dick or nothing, but uh, it says on your chart that you're fucked up. Uh, you talk like a fag, and your shit's all retarded. What I do is just like, like you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, I, I'm serious here. <laughs> Don't worry, scroll. Now there are plenty of tards out there living really kick-ass lives. My first wife was tarded. She's a pilot now. I love the doctor in the future smoking a giant cigarette of who knows what product but it was about the size of like a bob marley spliff just sitting there yeah you're fucked up and shit just smoking away (laughs) which him and then also uh god i can't remember his name but he plays michael bolton in office space who's a member of the cabinet of president camacho he seems to be doing the same thing too which is is never really explained that they're smoking weed but that's about all i can get from it is that they constantly like smoking blunts i mean it would have to be because a, a tobacco cigarette that size would just you know wreck you unless they have determined that tobacco is just absolutely fine now you know it seems that everything that was bad for us is okay in this world the only food seems to be fast food there is no water we just have the brondo so i i don't think they really care about anything uh being health good for your health or not i mean at one point the whole thing with the brondo as it eventually becomes the issue is that brondo had bought out basically the fda and the fcc or something and then got water basically banned to toilets and that everything has to be brondo like out of the out of where you would get regular water which isn't too far off from you know i privatization efforts in real life i mean it's it's sort of a a comically extreme example but in terms of the process it's not that far off well yeah i mean our water's already been put in bottles now it's it's unusual in some restaurants to go in and ask for just tap water which is uh hilarious and sad at the same time and i I think the the way that that storyline where where the putting water on the crops which of course is the right thing to do if you want to make plants grow destroys the economy so suddenly putting water on plants doing the doing the the thing that is intrinsically correct becomes a problem it is also another great commentary on a lot of things about uh, our, our economy and the way we sort of value jobs over useful labor and so we need to keep building f-35 fire planes that no one in the pentagon wants because they create jobs and we need to bottle water because that creates jobs and we need to buy seven blade razors because that creates jobs, even though these are things that no one needs or really wants. Yeah, and ecology be damned. We want to create jobs. We don't care what it does to the rest of the world. That's a little bit later on, but getting back to um, the the hospital, he is found not to have a tattoo and therefore uh, can't pay the bill and gets arrested for not paying his hospital bill and is taken before the judge. And I wanted to kind of talk about how also he skewers the legal system in here. And I absolutely love Stephen Root, who will remember as Milton from Office Space. Stephen Root is a freaking he is a chameleon. I mean, this guy can change his look so much. And it's not like he... It, I don't know. It's it's just little things that he does where he just will look completely different. And this, of course, he's rocking like the Wolverine hairdo and stuff, but and the extreme southern accent. But I mean, 
like I said, I watch this and then I watch Lady Killers. He's in that, and I'm like, oh my god, is that that? Oh yeah, yeah, that's him. It just shows up in a couple scenes, and but he always looks so different to me. He does great things with his voice too. I mean, it's a very subtle change from role to role, but it's it's changing the voice just a little bit. You know, it's not quite a rich little kind of thing, but it does sort of differenti- differentiate his characters in a really great way. Now, <clears throat> I'm fixing to commensurate this trial here. We're going to see if we can come up with a verdict up in here. Now, since y'all say you ain't got no money, we have proprietarily obtained for you one of them court-appointed lawyers. So put your hands together and give it up for Rico Pendejo. And in the court scene, this is where we learn that Frito is an attorney. And I love that his whole name is Frito Pendejo, which, if you know Spanish, means idiot. Joe's trying to get him to plead his case so he doesn't have to go to prison. And he basically does nothing to help him. He actually ends up agreeing more with the, uh, the prosecution than being any good of a defense lawyer. Your Honor, mm. I object that this guy also broke my apartment to shit. Yeah. What? And you know what else? I object that he's not going to have any money to pay me after he pays back all the money he stole from the hospital. Don't say I stole. You're my lawyer. And I object. I object that he interrupted me while I was watching. Oh, my ball! sure we have a mistrial here sir i'm gonna mistrial my foot up your ass you don't shut up just to point out steven root's full name is judge hank the hangman bmw so it's it just it just keeps going on like that we get all of this um all of this kind of stuff with the legal and then like later in the film like you talked a little bit about the prison scene where he goes to prison and then joe kind of realizes well if i tell him i'm supposed to get out today maybe i can get out without actually breaking out of jail i like also that there wasn't even a door on the jail like they didn't even think of like having a door there so he's like just look behind in the files i'm sure there's something that says i'm supposed to get out and then he just runs out a hallway and is free from jail like it was that easy to escape from jail but no one else figured that out i love though that rita is quicker because eventually we see that rita has uh kind of unfrozen as well and she's out and she's back to her old tricks uh I guess literally in this case, of being a prostitute in the future, but she's not having sex with anybody. She just has this one guy who keeps paying her so he can wait for sex. Mm, girl. Oh, yeah. So what are we going to do? Because you've been charging me by the hour and it's been like three days. Oh, yeah. Soon, baby, soon. Hey, you know what? Why don't you come back tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, baby, yeah. And yeah. I finally utilize you. You're going to be paying me. That's right. Whatever you say, sir. She has figured out the system much quicker than Joe. Like, she knows that she can play these people for idiots so much faster than he can. And he's really, you know, we said before, he's the most average person, the average Joe of our time. He's not the brightest bulb that's out there because it does take him that long to figure out, you know, that being well-spoken and trying to explain himself and all this just causes gales of laughter and people to try to attack him for sounding like quote unquote a fag. And it's just, Oh yeah. He, it really is kind of a frustrating character at times. I mean, isn't that sort of the theme of the film though? Is like 
and and I think this is what people relate to, I guess, in the film, which is people don't walk around thinking that they're necessarily intelligent. And then I think most people just sort of assume, you know, they're about average intelligence and you come across these, you know, total morons and public places and you're and you're sort of shocked you know how are how can people get through life being this dumb and that was basically sort of joe writ large but he's also at times not smart enough to pick up on the fact that she's a prostitute he still thinks that she's (laughs) got like a bad relationship with her boyfriend who abuses her and that she's an artist and really needs to get an agent to handle her paintings and you know what it's none of my business but when we get back you and upgrade should seriously think about couples counseling okay and you should also think about maybe finding an art manager who's not also your boyfriend yeah he's a little dim a little bit more than dim trusting let's let's say he's trusting but the other things with the legal system that i like is when he breaks out eventually uh him and frito are driving around and he's kind of like on the loose and somehow the tattoo gets picked up and then they figure out there's a fugitive in the area and they get out of the car and the cops descend on the car and they just blow it to shit and matter of fact they take like a rocket launcher or something and a plane goes down in the background and there's like people getting excited and then even even frito gets excited he's like yeah it's like look at that you know and it's like but that's your car man like they're blowing up your car (laughs) blow up that shit doesn't matter who gets affected as long as there's big explosions there's definitely a very short attention span in this vision of the future like every 30 seconds especially you see that with frito like his mind is like a squirrel looking at shiny nickels just like goes from one thing to the next and cannot remember. There's no continuity of thought. The reason why they're out to get him is they find out that the IQ test that he took in prison shows that he's the smartest man in the world. He got the highest IQ and on this test. So the, the president's been trying to track him down. So eventually they track him down. They take him to the white house and he's brought before, um, uh, our, our president. And you know, this is a sci-fi film pre Obama, because the president is black. <laughs> president being played by one of my absolute favorite actors, Terry Crews, being billed here as Terry Allen Crews. I have loved this guy since the first time I've seen him. And even when he's in a shitty movie, like White Chicks or The Expendables, he is fantastic. So I, I'm always riveted when he's on screen. I realized this when I watched it again for the first time in, in maybe a couple of years. That there seems to be this sci-fi trope that you know that you're watching a sci-fi movie when the president's black. Have you ever noticed oh, this? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Morgan Freeman has played the president several times. Always in the future. Yeah. There's usually a giant asteroid on its way. <laughs> so I guess maybe the next thing for people writing sci-fi is, I don't know, a Latino president. I don't know. I mean, they, they, I, we can't do the black president anymore. That's already been done. Well, it is kind of uh, life then imitating art in that, you know, there's always a black president when everything is about to go to shit. And we finally elect uh, an African-American president right as our economy collapses. So good, good work, Hollywood. You picked it. You nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Right when the automotive companies are about to close up, right when the swine flu is hitting the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Just a few things. Nice. Yeah, I, I for, totally forgot that. It's always when things are going the worst that the black president's in charge. Maybe the next one will be, uh, oh, and I know this is crazy talk, but maybe they'll do a woman president in sci-fi movies. Forget it. Ain't gonna happen. I know. It's just, That's just too nuts. It's just too crazy. <laughs> yeah. No one will believe it. Because the, she's going to get her period, and the next thing you know, we're bombing Russia. Oh, man. But his uh, his cabinet's great because he has like a kid in there who's secretary of defense he's got like a i guess maybe, 
<laughs> who's the secretary of education who seems to be enthralled with like a Rubik's cube or something and is kind of like, you know, real mouth breather who happens to be the uh his uh the president's brother-in-law, but he he does a good job, so it's okay. And which is the one who's like looking down the barrel of a gun? <laughs> I think that was him. I think that was the Secretary of Education. Yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't quite pick out uh, what he was looking at. I didn't write that down. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, just staring down the barrel of a gun, son of a gun. Joe becomes uh, Secretary of the Interior because that's, you know, supposed to be the job for um, making sure the plants grow. And he's trying to figure out why the plants grow. And he's going to make everything all right. And I love the – I love sort of the uh, – the, the State of the Union address that uh, President Camacho gives uh, <laughs> to Congress, which looks like it's ha- it looks like it's Congress and wrestling and like football, kind of like all put in a blender with the big jumbotron and all that other stuff. I know she's bad right now with all that starving bullshit and the dust storms and we running out of French fries and burrito coverings. Yeah. But I got a solution. That's what you said last time, dipshit. I got a solution. You're a dick. South Carolina, what's up? President Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho was a uh, former wrestler and I believe porn star as well. Yeah, I think it was Ultimate Fighter and Porn Star was his, uh, given his previous occupations. Another sort of life then imitating art is... Okay, we've got the African-American president. The country's in trouble. He's giving the State of the Union. And what happens? Someone from South Carolina starts heckling him during the State of the Union, which (laughs) actually happened. There are also those who claim that our reform efforts would ensure illegal immigrants. This, too, is false. The reforms reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegally. Not true. I totally right. forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, wow. I guess we are starting to live in a idiocracy world. And we'll talk more about that after our interview <laughs> about how idiocracy has, uh, instead of moved forward in five years, more like, I mean, 500 years has moved forward more in like five years <laughs> since the movie came out. Well, yeah, I don't remember, speaking of President Camacho being a uh, a former porn star, I don't remember what year it was when we started to go from the shame of people being involved in a sex tape, like a Rob Lowe, to that being how you got cachet in entertainment, like a Kim Kardashian or an R. Kelly or something. I mean, now it seems like you need to put out a sex tape if you're going to be taken seriously as one of these kind of quasi-celebs. So next week, look for the Mike White sex tape coming your way. You won't really know that it's me since I'm wearing a, a leather mask with a zipper. <laughs> good, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So, But the whole thing in, in front of Congress is just – it just kind of blew my mind when I saw that because he comes out to like this song and there's an explosion and like uh, smoke and everything and I was just like, Maybe that's one of the ways that we can actually get people interested in politics. I, I, I like I was thinking of sort of the uh, the evolution of this as being you know people like real flashy entrances, so maybe we need that to get them excited about following politics, and then it just sort of devolved from there. Yeah, everything became spectacle. Like every every public event in this movie was spectacle. It was it was bread and circus. So then he he starts. Joe starts about trying to figure out how to get the plants to grow, and this is where 
he's out there and he gets sprayed from the uh, the irrigation with the Brondo. And he's just sort of like, why are they putting this on the crops? We should put the water on the crops. But 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 why would you put water on the crops? Because the Brondo's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. So wait a minute. What you're saying is that you want us to put water on the crops. Yes. Water. Like out the toilet? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be out of the toilet, but, but yeah, that's the idea. But Brondo's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. Okay, look. That whole circular logic that they have is just amazing. And the whole thing that they only associate wa- water with what's in toilets. It is one of the more interesting sort of, if you, if you don't think about this too much kind of moments, it's like, do they not have rivers and lakes in the future? Like, water is only in toilets? But yeah, the circular logic, especially with, I, I think it was the kid in the cabinet, kept like doing this thing with his hands where he was like shuffling them over and over again, as if to say, the logic is circular, therefore, it's correct. <laughs> well, you know, it, that's a good point about the rivers and, and streams and th- stuff, because whenever they show, there are just a few shots of like the landscape of the world and oh my God, those are just the most terrifying kind of shots where, you know, you get the, the buildings that are like roped together and buildings that have fallen from one to the other. I I don't know if it's like the golden gate in the background, but there's this huge spire at one point. I'm like, well, maybe the whole base just been filled in with garbage because it is just every place. And the best one for me though, is the, um, the roads that are just, you know, going around to nothing, a bridge to nowhere, literally, and the cars that just keep going off and just forming this huge pile of cars <laughs> at the bottom of this. They just stop with the, they're like, yeah, it's enough overpass for today. We'll just leave it here. Yeah. Yeah. It's I forgot a, about it. It's a walkie bridge. Yeah. <laughs> so eventually he tries to use the water. It doesn't work. And the president told the people in his address that if it doesn't work, then, you know, we're going to put him in prison. He's going to go back to prison and, um, you know, that'll be the end of it. So he ends up uh, going back to prison when he tells them to use water and the economy crashes because everyone works for Brondo, it appears. And I love the, the, the joke on Fox News in here that they have. He tried taking water from toilets, but it's secretary not sure who finds himself in the toilet now. And as history pulls down its pants and prepares to lower its ass on Not Shore's head, it will be Daddy Justice who will be crapping on him this time. <laughs> and the names of the people that are on Fox News, the one guy who's just shirtless. <laughs> and the the female reporter who keeps looking to the right when the report is coming up on the left and everything. Ah, oh, just it's so many jokes upon jokes upon jokes in this film that it it is just it takes a lot to pull it apart and I kind of hate watching this on a small screen because I know I'm missing probably, you know, 30% of the jokes just because I wasn't able to see this on the big screen because there's so much stuff going on in the background of all of these shots. I also like that the the TV newscasters Despite being basically naked and and as dumb as anyone else in the in the future, if not dumber, have perfect broadcast diction. Like they tonight on the news. I mean, they do that. That's the skill that remains. You know, the actual <laughs> critical thinking, reporting. No, but they they can speak in an authoritative voice. It's all about the presentation, right? Which. 
then leads us to uh, he's gonna he gets one day of rehabilitation, which Joe goes, hey, that doesn't sound too bad, you know, one day rehabilitation. And they're like, no, no, rehabilitation is their basically Monday night football, and it is uh, it, it's basically back to the gladiator school. <laughs> to a certain extent, uh, 500 years in the future, which reminds me of this joke that George Carlin had years ago about the Monday night executions and the idea that America wants two things and wants a balanced budget and it wants capital punishment. So why don't we put the two together? I honestly believe if you make the death penalty a little more entertaining and learn to market it correctly, you just might be able to raise enough money to balance the stupid fucking budget. Balance the stupid fucking budget. And don't forget, the polls show the American people want capital punishment and they want a balanced budget. And I think even in a fake democracy, people ought to get what they want once in a while just to feed this illusion that they're really in charge. Let's use capital punishment the same way we use sports and television in this country to distract people and take their minds off how bad they're being fucked by the upper 1%. Now, unfortunately... Unfortunately, Monday Night Football doesn't last long enough. What we really need is year-round capital punishment on TV every night with sponsors. Gotta have sponsors. I'm sure as long as we're killing people, Marlboro Cigarettes and Dow Chemical will be proud to participate. Proud to participate. I also love that the, they make a special like killing machine for Joe. And they're going to bring it out, but it was too large to actually get into the arena. Like Someone had the engineering skill in this future to build this giant, like, I don't even know how to describe this giant tank-like machine, I guess. And but they never thought to measure the doorway. And the the, the two that do make it in the what dildozer and I can't remember the name of the other one, but those are just insane. And he's driving like what looks like a Yugo or something. Like they give him his own car to battle against them with this big giant like rubber dildo as the uh, I guess like the hood ornament or something. Okay. Let's meet our rehabilitation officers for tonight with a combined record of 62 kills. Please welcome Billy Mawamba and the Dildozer! comes off and then their fans fighting over like who gets to take home the dildo from the front of his car in the, in the crowd you know like it was a football right the thing that's funny is he's supposed to meet and this is the guy who is in the big uh, the big tank thing that gets destroyed because it can't get into the arena his name is beef supreme and that actually is luke wilson's brother andrew wilson who plays beef really? supreme in the scene that was uh from he was in bottle rocket right he was future man right yeah which has all three of the Wilson brothers, and you'll you'll hear Luke talk about uh, working with his brothers uh, in the interview coming up. I really liked Beef Supreme, especially that he's this kind of silent and happy guy, and just very, you know, of course, uh, playing to the audience the entire time. Yeah, there's that scene where he's sort of fake chasing him around the arena, like, I don't know where he is, and doing the call and response. Right. It felt like an episode of Card Sharks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny that... I don't know if the uh, I guess we have gone from Gladiators the TV show American Gladiators and then I want to say Terry Crews was in a uh, TV show that was kind of the same 
And now we've gone to like American Ninja or Ninja Warrior or whatever, which is a lot less violent. But then we've also kind of embraced um, Ultimate Fighting Championship at the same time, where it's just, you know, the violence of uh, wrestling taken past that to real life, just mayhem. I can see this uh, car battle definitely becoming uh, something of the future, too. But I love to that. We go all the way back to the Malachi Crunch at one point during this car battle. <laughs> so they do name check the Malachi brothers from Happy Days as they're talking about this. And then also I love that they have a band there, which where oh, if yeah. it was a sporting event, it would be like a marching band, but it's not. It's like a, a bunch of guys playing guitar. And only guitar. <laughs> they're all playing the same riff. All right. What was that 80s video? The, the guy who was in the suit. And the girls were all behind him sort of playing guitar at the same time. That was what... Oh, it was one of those Robert Palmer videos. Right, yeah. That's Thank you. to love. Yes. That's what it kind of looked like. like. And I don't know why, if there's any purpose for that or if that was just accidental, but that, I mean, it looked directly like came from Addicted to Love. What's that whole thing of why have one when you can have 20 or 30 or 40? It's so... This future that is here is just so much about excess. In his battle during rehabilitation, it finally comes that uh, Frito goes out with one of the cameramen and because Rita realizes that actually the water is working and after they end up at the Starbucks because they're morons and can't figure out exactly why they left rehabilitation with the camera in the first place, uh, they get into a fight the camera falls and it shows the uh, the crops are growing so he Joe ends up getting his pardon after all. You like money too? Oh, I, I like money. Yeah. How many billions? We haven't commented yet on the fact that Starbucks in the future does not serve coffee, but serves hand jobs with extra foam. <laughs> it's just like the, this coffee; it's not profitable enough. We need something that people really want, you know, that will they'll really pay for. Man, I could really go for a Starbucks, you know. Yeah, well, I really don't think we have time for a hand job, Joe. Well, and then that costco from earlier that just goes on forever and again talk about the excess i mean why have one couch there when you can have a field of couches all exactly the same but they have this field of couches that they're walking past and just it goes on for miles and miles so much so that frito actually attended law school there yeah and there's like a plane crashed inside the building and there's birds <laughs> and you get the feeling that maybe it's like its own state or something because it's so damn big. yeah it's, it's great i don't know um do you want to go into a uh, spoiler here or do you want to uh, hold off on that well i mean the movie's what uh six from 14 eight years old so i don't know we can or not i don't know but after he becomes after he gets pardoned and you know the crops are growing again and of course everyone's happy uh joe eventually becomes vice president to president camacho and then becomes president himself marries rita and he gives this great speech before um before the house of representing as they call it in here, <laughs> how things need to go back to the way they were. Because, you know, back in the day, there were some good things. Today, I step into the shoes of a great man, a man by the name of Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho. Under President Not Sure's leadership, a new era dawned. You know, there was a time in this country when smart people were considered cool. Well, 
maybe not cool, but smart people did things like build ships and pyramids, and they even went to the moon. The line from that that I, that I always remember was... People wrote books and movies, movies that had stories, so you cared whose ass it was and why it was farting, and I believe that time can come again. Which receives a standing ovation from the House of Representatives. Like, that was the most profound thought they had ever heard. And I love Luke Wilson here because it seems like he's doing a mix of John Kennedy and Bill Clinton. Yes. And I love that their salute is the middle finger now and just flipping everybody off. We've devolved that much. Very nice. And uh, how it ends is uh, Joe and Rita get married and they have three kids. And Frito gets married to multiple wives and has like 30 kids. And the voiceover is... Joe and Rita had three children, the three smartest kids in the world. Vice President Frito took eight wives and had a total of 32 kids. 32 of the dumbest kids ever to walk the earth. Okay, so maybe Joe didn't save mankind, but he got the ball rolling. And that's pretty good for an average guy. So I like the idea that even though we got the crops to grow, even though all this stuff, we may still kind of be fucked. Yeah. It's not necessarily the, the happiest ending in the world. No, but it's it, it's still a little hopeful. There's a little hope in there. Yeah. Did you stick around till the end of the credits? I'm not sure. I don't think I have. Is there a little Easter egg there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, upgrade has, has had himself frozen. So he uh, the pod opens up. And he gets out and, and starts looking for his bitch and just starts going down the street in his pimp clothes while like the hip-hop music starts coming up and everything. And that's the end of the movie. Nice. Uh, that's equal. Yeah, there you go. Something tell me, tells me that's not going to happen, so, especially since like Extract got even fewer theaters as far as I know. <laughs> I don't even remember when Extract opened up. Yeah, yeah. This movie kind of escaped. Um, I know that there was a contractual minimum that they had to do, and that they ha- it had to be in a certain amount of theaters for so long and things like that. And it it really is kind of sad. The, going back to that Alex Jones um, interview with Mike Judge, he talks about in there where they did uh, test screenings where they gave cards to the audience and said, okay, we'll fill these out. And there he was saying that there's like five different gradings that you can give a film when you're in a test audience. But so it's like excellent, very good, good, poor, and you know, like terrible or whatever. And he said that the studio only counts the first two, like they count excellent and very good. They don't count good. And he said that when they counted good, they had like 70, 80% audience, like liked it he goes but when they only counted the first two he goes it was really low because it is so weird and there is certain elements that are that are odd he goes he goes if someone shows you something like this kind of like what you were saying mike when you first saw it you're like yeah it's good but it's like when you saw it again and you got more of the jokes and every time i see it i always see something new because like you were saying there's so many different things in here it's hard to really get it all in the first time that you watch it because it moves so fast yeah, the first time I saw this, I it felt like a skit that went on for too long. Like there's that opening up where we talked about that kind of prologue, and I thought that almost 
stood on its own. And then the rest of the movie with Luke Wilson, who, like I said, his character is fairly dim. So it was a little tough to kind of get behind him. Um, but now I've kind of accepted who he is and everything. So I'm okay with the film. But as far as the first time, I was just like, man, this is like one joke that just goes on for way too long. I really could have done with this to be like a half an hour movie rather than an hour and a half. But now I do kind of appreciate it a lot more. And, and it's nice to see some of these faces pop up like Justin Long or like, you know, I didn't know who Maya Rudolph was at the time. So seeing her in here, it means a little bit more now. But yeah, I, when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. But I have to say, I might have felt kind of the same way about Office Space, where now Office Space, to me, is absolutely a classic. Well, I think they're both movies that really would have benefited from from trailers and sort of, oh yeah, you know, prepping an audience for, here's, here's what this movie is really about. And it's just weird, like you say, the extract also the same same treatment. It's like, everything Mike Judge has done has been, extremely successful both critically and commercially and yet everyone keeps giving them chances to do things that they don't support you know it's like then the tracker shows once this gets before the right audience it it's going to make you a lot of money but that no one wants no one in hollywood wants to put him you know do the work to get him there sort of the traditional traditional marketing means it's all this you know sort of cult favorite dvd or vhs passed around till it reaches critical mass kind of success. And it's like one guy in Hollywood finally figures out how to market Mike judge. He becomes the next Brandon Tartikoff or Michael Eisner. It really is also, I I think kind of a hard, a hard sell for some people on, on those films, you know, just out of the box because it's, he's dealing with stuff that isn't traditional laugh riot stuff. I mean, I, I think you could watch Idiocracy on two levels. You could watch it just as pure entertainment, and then you can watch it as a satire. It's kind of like how The Simpsons works. It's how all of his, all of Mike Judge's stuff really works. And I think that, like we've talked about on the show before, Mike, a lot of these studio types are like, that's that's too hard to try and market. That's too hard to try and get people to understand what that is. I need something that's just one thing, and that's it. Like, stop putting these multiple levels on top of things because then I get confused when I'm trying to sell this film. Well, yeah, it, it, the whole thing with Fox just kind of shit canning this, it totally reminds me of, of freaked where it was this fantastic movie, hilarious. They have a regime change at Fox and then they just bury it. And this time it seemed to be not necessarily the regime change, but the whole idea of, yeah, this movie, it's a little too smart for us. We're just going to, you know, put it on the back burner kind of thing. And just, too biting you know we it's just too many it, it's almost too smart for the audience yeah so how about we go to the break and play an interview with the star of idiocracy luke wilson and we'll come back and we'll talk about some of this stuff and how idiocracy since its escape and specifically since it got onto uh home video has uh been a place of uh some debate and also uh, a lot of fans One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. We're not going to talk about him. 
He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. Here's rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, let's just go hog wild. In the car accident, you just use a little bit and you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. 
You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. Uh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Going back to the early days for you, you kind of come from a media family in a way. Yeah. Um, my dad had run the public television station in Dallas from, I think, maybe 68 to 1977. And then and then he started a little advertising agency um, uh, in Dallas. And then my mom uh, was a photographer who worked with Richard Avedon on um, his book, In the American West. She kind of organized all the logistics, you know, what rodeos, what state fairs, you know, what motels they'd stay in. And then she also is a photographer herself who's had, I think, four or five books published, including one about uh, Avedon working on In the American West. So, yeah, kind of grew up in the arts a little bit. Is that where you and your brothers got your interest in acting? Do you think it was from that? Um, I mean, my dad was a, you know, a big movie fan and, you know, he would want to go to a movie and he'd just kind of take us along or whoever was around. And, um, and then we also just kind of naturally, for some reason, gravitated towards movies. I mean, our, our friends were, you know, really into movies and would kind of see everything, you know, from, uh, you know, just the stuff at the multiplex to, you know, I'm always surprised thinking back how we did kind of track stuff down that was only showing it, you know, the one theater that was kind of more um, art house type stuff. And then also there was one theater in town that would show, you know, double features of older movies. And there was one of our friend's parents would take us to those, you know, I think it was a, a dollar per movie. So we'd go to those. And, uh, yeah, it was just, without ever kind of talking about it, it just was kind of our primary interest. And eventually, when you got into actually doing film and things like that, and I'm thinking of both the short and feature of Bottle Rocket, I mean, you worked with your brothers, so I was going to ask, you know, what are sort of the best and worst things that you find working with your brothers? Um, I think uh, you could probably narrow it down to the best and worst is the shorthand great to have a shorthand and then sometimes having that shorthand which can just be a glare um where there's so much history behind one look from one of your brothers um but no i mean for the most part and i think that's why we've done it you know here and there over the years and you know i think we would have done it more you know had we had the chance and and we you know I've made the effort to do it and, you know, tried to get things set up with Andrew and Owen, and we're trying to do one right now. 
in a way, just kind of you, you cut out the middleman a little bit. And yeah, we, you know, growing up together and being close, you know, just kind of one less person you have to get to know or, you know, worry about working with. Do you remember uh, when you met Wes Anderson? Um, uh, yeah, I think I met Wes probably for the first time, you know, when we're living in an apartment down in Austin, uh, when, uh, you know, would have been you know, 89, 90, or actually, yeah, maybe like 90, 91. And I just went down to visit Owen, um, maybe my senior year of high school, and those guys would have been a couple years in. And Yeah, I think Wes had written a play, and Owen was acting in it, and I went and saw the play and met Wes, and yeah, I think that's kind of would have been the first time. What was sort of your impression of him then, and then, you know, working with him over the films um, that you did? Well, I mean, thinking back, it, you know, he had just the way his room, you know, was organized and... You know, I remember, like, photographs he had up on his wall and just, you know, kind of threw my my mom, and she had a really big photography collection, her, her book collection. So they were kind of, you know, Cartier-Bresson-type pictures and then also some film pictures, you know, that he'd either photocopied or cut out of books. And then, you know, just things like that where I was familiar with stuff like that, but I also thought, well, gosh, this... Uh, you know, we don't have any other friends that have pictures like this up. Um, and, you know, just things like how meticulous kind of his handwriting was, things like that that kind of make a impression on you. Uh, but, yeah, he definitely seemed di- different. And, um, and, you know, we had kind of a wide range of friends, you know, we had, you know, people we played sports with and people we'd grown up with and, you know, guys that, you know, we'd go down the creek with and, like, blow up firecrackers and stuff like that. And then there was Wes, who was, you know, kind of much more kind of thoughtful and creative and not into that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, kind of fit in. Um, you know, he'd grown up in Houston and gone to one of these schools that um, the school we went to in Dallas, we competed against them. So, yeah, it, he, it, nothing was that out of the ordinary. Do you remember how uh, Bottle Rocket came to be, first the short and then into the feature? Yeah, those guys had written a full-length script, and I think maybe the brothers McMullen had be had been done at that point and we had been thinking to try and do something like that and then you know quickly found out that even to do something like that was much more money than we had you know 200 grand or 250 grand and and then through my dad we met this guy Kit Carson who had you know, kind of been an experimental filmmaker and was around Dallas and had co-written Paris, Texas. And my dad put Owen and Wes together with Kit Carson, who said, you know, why don't you make a short film? He had ties to Sundance and, you know, said, take this script and from the script kind of make a self-contained little film. And that's just what those guys did. And then, you know, it was just kind of, natural progression to put put me in it and i mean it's not as if i've been pushing to be an actor but i was just kind of around i was going to ask about that because you basically are the lead 
you know, I mean, it's kind of co-leads. There's kind right. of a, a group there. But, I mean, for you, Anthony, how did he evolve between the short and the feature for you? Did you... Um, well, I mean, it was already written, the, the, the feature script. And then, you know, they, they did, Owen and Wes did go out to L.A. to work with James L. Brooks one summer on a rewrite. And I went with them. And they kind of... I don't I don't remember it changing that much but you know there were you know changes made I think maybe with the relationship between Anthony and Inez and things like that so yeah I don't know that it changed that much he was always kind of the same guy kind of the foil for Dignan where Dignan was kind of the loose cannon and Anthony was kind of the more you know kind of quiet uh, introspective one and and Dignan was more kind of um I don't even know how I'd describe it. <laughs> Do you think that's sort of your personalities between you and your brother? Um, not really. I mean, Owen's really nothing like Dignan. That was why it was so funny to see him play that character. Um, you know, we definitely knew characters in Texas that, you know, we got a kick out of, like friends and then just people from around town that kind of dress differently and talk differently and, you know, you kind of wondered what they did for work and and things like that. And I mean, I yeah, Owen wasn't really anything like Dignan. And maybe in terms of Anthony, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's not like it was you know some Gary Oldman transformation for me to play that part. It was you know seemed kind of uh, it, didn't, it seemed kind of an easy part to play. So maybe that does mean it was kind of you know I could identify with it. After it came out, that really helped to establish the three of you, you know, in a lot of ways to to get your career rolling. And I was wondering, you know, what that was like for you, because it seems like you really didn't go out to pursue to be an actor really in that way. It almost feels like you kind of fell into it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't I mean, it was really like I was saying, really into movies. That's what I read about, you know, read about actors, read about directors and, you know, was interested in acting. But I don't know that. I ever would have, you know, moved to New York or moved to L.A. had it not been for Owen or Wes. I, I, you know, I think it probably would have just been one of those thoughts or ideas that just kind of faded away. Um, but, yeah, just through those guys, you know, started doing it. So, in a way, I did kind of feel ready to do it, you know. Had a, you know, new about movies and a little, you know, as much as you could know about how movies are made from having read about it, but, you know, didn't study, didn't go to film school. So, yeah, I mean, I did kind of fall into it in a way, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm glad I kind of came into it the way that I did. I mean, I also respect people that study acting and things like that. I just don't know that it would have worked for for me. It might have kind of scared me off from it. Was there ever a time that you were thinking of doing something else? Not really. I mean, I was pretty young. I was, you know, in, you know, 21, 22. And, I mean, all I'd really done up to, up to that point that I enjoyed was uh, landscaping. Um, you know, not complicated landscaping. I mean, it's just, you know, kind of working on landscaping crews. That's kind of what I, what I, what I did and what I like to do. You had a... A part in the next film in Rushmore, but then you played Richie in 
Royal Tenenbaums, and I was wondering, was that written with you in mind, or, um, or did you think... I don't know if they did write that with me in mind. I mean, I think they kind of probably did, or probably knew, Wes and Owen knew early on that I would play that, and Owen would play uh, Eli Cash. Um, but yeah, I can't say for sure. I mean, I think probably they kind of would have written it with me in mind. I mean, that was also a considerably bigger film, bigger cast. And, yeah. And what do you mean, sort of, um, how did you sort of see this evolve with both your brother and Wes in terms of those early days with Bottle Rocket and then doing Royal Tenenbaums? I mean, how how was it? Yeah, I mean, each movie kind of seemed to be a, a, step, a step up um, just in every respect. I'm sh- it just in terms of those first three that I was involved with, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure the budget went up, the number of name actors went up, and, uh, yeah, I mean, first movie was shot in Dallas, that seemed totally natural, second Rushmore was shot in Houston, you know, so we were on location more, I mean, even though it was Wes's hometown, and then the Tenenbaums, bombs, yeah, we were in Manhattan, you know, with a much bigger cast, and, you know, of course, you know, Hackman and Gwyneth Paltrow and Ben Stiller and Danny Glover and Angelica Houston, so all of a sudden it was like, you know, being kind of majorly in the deep end of the pool, while at the same time, I mean, and it all kind of comes from Wes, he, you know, he never seemed overwhelmed or under the gun, he just always seemed totally you know, one of those people that was doing what he was meant to be doing, and you and, yeah, it's just like, you know, the person in charge, I mean, it's one of those cliches where the whole vibe on a set or in a company or in a business kind of comes from the top. And, yeah, Wes was, you know, just always kind of in in control. I mean, and you being a big movie fan, you and your brother and Wes and everything, I mean, to to be on that set and to have those interactions with people like I'm sure you've seen, you know, hundreds of Gene Hackman films by the time you made Royal yeah. Bombs. I mean, what was it like being able to interact with people? It, pretty, pretty incredible. And then, you know, one thing I also learned from, from Hackman is, yeah, from loving his movies, you know, the, the big ones. And then even, you know, smaller ones like the package, you know, stuff like that. I could remember seeing in the theater and, um, so what I, you know, I'd think, gosh, this is unbelievable, Gene Hackman. And then as soon as I started to work with him, didn't think about that stuff. And so it made me kind of think about how he kind of carried himself, how he was on the set, how prepared he was. And, you know, so to work with somebody so iconic and then have it all kind of go out the window and suddenly be thinking of him as a character was really interesting and, you know, helpful to me to think, okay, well, you know, this guy's certainly not talking about his legacy or acting like he has one. He's just doing this part. I mean, we, I mean, just the first time with James Kahn was pretty incredible. And then, you know, again, being, you know, James Caan, I could remember seeing Thief with my dad, you know, when I would have been 10 or 11, just being with him on a Saturday and him wanting to go see it and being really blown away by it. Um, and then, you know, Bill Murray, of course, Stripes was one of those movies that had a friend with a with a Betamax, and that was one of the first ones out, you know, so we'd probably watch that a hundred times, so... You know, immediately we were around these people that we were huge fans of, and then, you know, 
got along with them and felt comfortable with them. And um, so that was just kind of interesting. That kind of kind of set the tone. Yeah. And like I said, I it, it's always great to meet people whose work you admire and, you know, kind of takes you a, a minute or two to realize, hey, they're just like you doing the work. Yeah, exactly. You kind of mentioned it a little bit, but growing up in Texas, did you find that a lot of the characters that worked their way into these films that your brother wrote with Wes were based on people that you knew or interacted with? Um, yeah, I mean, especially kind of early on for, you know, Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, just these people kind of around Dallas, kind of on the fringes, because, you know, we were kind of on the fringes, too, after you know, college and just kind of trying to figure out what to do and all living together and, you know, have, you know, working, me working landscaping and then those guys working different jobs and, you know, becoming friends with Bob Musgrave and, you know, the and Kumar, you know, who, you know, we'd go to this little health food restaurant where that Kumar's son ran and Kumar taught yoga upstairs. So, yeah, these guys were just kind of a part of our lives, so it seemed like kind of a natural progression to have them in the movie. And then I'm sure kind of on a psychological level, maybe it kind of made us feel more comfortable and we, you know, it wasn't such a, you know, we never kind of stepped back to think, oh gosh, this is, you know, you know, this is a $5 million undertaking, you know, we just were kind of to look over and see, you know, Kumar or, or um, you know, different people that we knew, you know, kind of made it seem like it wasn't that out of the ordinary. Going to ask you about working with another Texan, and that's Mike Judge. Uh-huh. And, you know, Idiocracy, uh, how did that come to you? Um, well, it had known and been friends with Judge for a while and can't even really remember how I met him, just knew that he was an Austin guy and then, you know, just got to be friends and it was more just kind of going out and having beers, you know, he'd be here or I'd be in Austin, we were just hanging around together a lot and um, and then he had Idiocracy and so we just talked about it and it just seemed, you know, really funny and, um, I'd auditioned for Office Space before I knew Mike, and I'd, I'd auditioned as a voice on King of the Hill before I knew Mike. So I knew about his, you know, you know, the stuff he was doing, you know, before I knew him as a person. And then I, I can't even remember how we met. We just it was those one of those things, just kind of getting along with the people and having similar similar sense of humor. And Mike grew up in Albuquerque and then spent a lot of time in Dallas, so it just kind of felt simpatico. Do you remember what you thought of it when you first read it? I mean, I thought it was like it was one of those things was making me think, gosh, am I now, you know, it's it seemed like this is pretty out there where it was kind of making me think, you know, how it's like, I always feel like there's kind of generational humor, like there were people that would have thought, you know, something about Mary was crude or something like that, or people that would have thought Airplane was crude, or people that would have thought, you know, Clockwork Orange was too much. And, you know, there were times on Idiocracy, you know, where I'd think, geez, this is, this is too much. And then Mike is so kind of, has such a poker face that, you know, I'd say, is this too much, Mike? And he'd be like, oh, you know, it seems funny to me. Um, so so we just do it. And, of course, Mike was right. And, 
and yeah, it's, it was you know fun to do. And also, I, I always respect somebody like Mike, you know, because I feel like you can kind of get that sense of humor that you have when you're younger, you know, beaten out of you, or you know, you know, you get told to grow up, or told, you know, ask why you're laughing at that. Like I can remember, I did these commercials with Errol Morris, and he was, you know, it reminded me of Mike the way he acted, and. Errol Morse had said to me, like his mom had said to him, well, if you think that's funny, then you're sick. <laughs> and and I think, yeah, it takes a certain kind of like stubbornness and strength to kind of hold on to the dreams of the youth, even if they are kind of uh, immature. <laughs> it sounds like he definitely got along on the set and was just wondering how he was as a director. Oh, he's great, you know just real funny, real open to ideas, and, um, you know, I just remember doing this, you know, where I, my character had been made president, and in the rehearsals, just when we were setting up the shots, I was just kind of kidding around trying to do a JFK voice, and uh, and then when it came time to shoot it, I just did it in a normal voice, and Mike said, aren't you going to, you know, do the JFK voice, so... And I was like, gosh, I mean, you, you, you want me to do that? I was like, I will do it. I was just kind of doing it for fun. And then, yeah, it was, that was one of those things where, yeah, Mike had me do it. And um, he also puts together kind of a gr good group of people. You know, he had this rapper from Houston there, and then, you know, he had another rapper there, and then Terry Crews before I knew who he was, and then a guy from... Fort Worth, who we'd been in a band with that just made these kind of ridiculous faces. And so I feel like it's kind of the same kind of way of working as, you know, kind of Wes and Owen and stuff like that. Well, actually, when you're giving that speech as the president, I, I saw a little Bill Clinton in there. Yeah, maybe Clinton, too. <laughs> yeah. It was who's always fun to do. I was wondering, was there much uh, improv in there, or did he pretty much have it scripted out? For that speech or the movie? Just the whole film. Um, yeah, there was, there was improv there, but it was also pretty scripted. But yeah, Mike was kind of definitely open to stuff. And, you know, I can't remember. Just because we're talking about the 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 speech, you know, I, I made up that name, and Mike left it in there like Hector... Herbert, Mountain Dew, Elizondo, Camacho, or whatever it was. Um, yeah, where Mike would just kind of leave stuff in that he thought was funny. Um, but it was also just a really funny script, and that's where you kind of rely on a good director. I've, I've just found over the years sometimes when something's funny, it can make, you know, it's just like kidding around with a friend and riffing with somebody where something's funny and you think, oh, what if we did this? And it, it you know, it might not... It might just be more the same and not as funny or not more funny. And that's when, you know, it's good to have somebody kind of sift through the ideas, but, but also being open to them. Um, and that's how Mike is. It's funny that you said you came up with that, the name for the president, which included, of course, brand names. And there's so many brand names in the film. And was wondering, um, was that all stuff product placement? Were you guys allowed to mock that? Were you concerned that you were going to yeah, get lawsuits? Yeah, I have no idea how they got away with it. I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's kind of smart for, you know, companies like that, 
you know, like Starbucks and Costco and things like that. I have no idea how they got away with that. I mean, it really surprised me. Just like even when you're doing something positive, it's you know, you get told by producers, like, well, we've got to check on that or don't do that. Or, you know, there's a book behind you in the background of a scene that has nothing to do with anything. It's like, well, we haven't cleared that yet. So, yeah, I don't know how they did that. Yeah, it was always something that I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, when the film was about to come out, it got held back, and there was this whole thing with the studio. I think it played in, like, two places in order to meet some contract and was just wondering, you know, what your reaction was when that happened. I mean, I I was reading the paper out here one day, and it was a Wednesday, and I came across a really small ad for it, no one's name on it, or it might have said a Mike Judge film, and it had one of those kind of Michelangelo drawings, kind of diagrams of a of a body, and uh, that was the first I saw it. And then, yeah, they just dumped the movie onto seven screens, um... And I never heard why. I mean, I heard something about, like, they didn't like the way it made fun of corporations. I never really believed that. I mean, I can't believe it even got that far. I mean, my thought was always it was just, like, some executive saying, like, look, we've already spent however much we spent on this. We're not going to put an additional 10 or $20 million into advertising. Let's get rid of this and cut our losses. And then, yeah, it became a cult hit, and, you know, that's, like the same thing happened to Mike at the same studio with Office Space. They dumped Office Space, and then Office Space became like the second rental in the history of 20th Century Fox behind Star Wars. Um, so, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. I'm just, maybe it's because Bottle Rocket came and went in two weeks and then became a kind of a, a cult movie that it's never. It's never really affected me. I mean, I'm just used to, you know, that happening to good movies, you know, that I've been in and good movies that I've read about, you know, and even, you know, people's albums, you'll read about things that came out and didn't do well or like, you know, Exile on Main Street getting released and getting panned or being told it was too long or things like that. So, I mean, I've never put much stock in that. But, yeah, it was definitely odd that it just got, you know, there was no, did no press on it, nothing, no, you know, premiere. Um, It it was one of those things that always made me feel bad for Mike. Um, But, I, you know, I think it's one of those things where he kind of feels vindicated now. But also, like me, you know, because of office space, he's always, he might have, like, a little thicker skin, just kind of used to the BS that goes on behind the scenes. You kind of surprised that it became the kind of cult hit that it is. Yeah, for sure. And it was one of those things you started. To, I would start to hear people saying lines back to me and not know what they were saying. You know, saying "excuse me" and people saying, "You know, that's from idiocracy." And then just sure enough, over the years, you know, heard it more and more. And then you know, different people coming up and you know, just fans and older people and you know, like. 14 year olds thinking it was hilarious and then like odd people like I had Jackson Brown come up to me at a concert one time and say he loved it and <laughs> to think about you know this really sensitive singer songwriter you know liking a movie like that um, yeah I think it definitely kind of appealed to a wide range of people your career over the last basically 20 odd years has been a, um, a range of different things and was just wondering 
you know, what ones sort of stick out in your mind as, you know, great experiences you've had making film? Um, yeah, I mean, they're definitely kind of touchstones in there that I think about. And, you know, the short bottle rocket, the feature bottle rocket, and the Tenenbaums, and, you know, had a lot of fun on old school. I mean, that was the first, you know, just to work with Will Ferrell, who was so funny, and Vince Vaughn being so quick. You know, I'd never really been on a on a movie like that, you know, just a full-blown kind of comedy with really kind of talented people and Todd Phillips being, you know, a really kind of driven, talented director. And uh, the Wendell Baker story, the m- movie I wrote that we made, that was really fun and learned a lot on that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've... I, you know, I did like a. I had a friend who was staying at the house, and he went. He was doing props on uh, 310 to Yuma, the Russell Crowe, Christian Bale movie. And I thought, gosh, that sounds great. And so, called to see if there were any parts, and it had already been cast. And uh, Jim Mangles, like, yeah, it's already been cast, but I mean, there's a small part of this railroad enforcer who tortures Russell Crowe and so went and did that for two weeks where it was, you know, to be a bit player and watch really good people work was, you know, incredibly fun and interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I've always felt like I've learned on movies and met people, you know, cast and crew where I've thought, they're great. I would like to work with them again, you know, if I'm ever able to get a project going myself they'd be a good person to work with and um yeah i've always you know just there's always something interesting on sets and and there are also uh you know you know movies obviously that you know you kind of enjoy more than others i mean obviously you've done a like i said just a broad range of stuff do you feel that there are some in there and if you want to name one or two that you feel are overlooked that people should go back and check out maybe um, they haven't. i really don't think about them that much i mean i you know i don't think about the ones people don't mention that much i mean i guess maybe the wendell baker story just because i wrote it and that's the only movie i've directed i directed it with my brother andrew i mean that seems like kind of a good I've always liked that movie and just kind of we were going for kind of just a 70s comedy kind of vibe, just kind of a movie that just kind of ambled along. Yeah, I like that one, but other than that, I mean, I really don't think about them that much. I mean, I know they're in there, but yeah. Um, you know, different people mention to me Henry Poole. They say they like that a lot. Or people mention the HBO show Enlightened, which not a lot of people saw. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're... What have you been uh, working on recently or you're excited that you're working on coming up? Um, well, made this short film, Satellite Beach, that people have seemed to... People have been responding to... Um, I'd read an article in the L.A. Times about the moving of the uh, space shuttle uh, Enterprise from LAX to the California Science Center, and I'd read an article about the guy that was in charge of moving it, and I thought that it would be interesting to kind of do a little story based on that guy, only have my character be somebody who thought he was in charge of it, but really had nothing to do with it. And so we made this short film, and um, yeah, I've gotten it into a bunch of film festivals, and 
won a couple of them, and uh, that that was really fun to do. Just something completely on our own, you know, with no notes and you know, no money, and just you know, a little crew of like me and you know, my brother Andrew and five or six friends. So that was really interesting. And then uh, got this comedy that I wrote with a friend called Prison Love that. Uh, that uh, Owen's going to be in and I'll be in and um, just, you know, within the next couple of days we'll have my co-star, you know, have his deal signed, so I probably can't say who that is. But um, uh, So that'll be really fun to do. And then I got this baseball action movie I wrote called War As Nine that's trying to get that made too. So like the idea, you know, trying to work on my own stuff here and there and then oh, I always like playing smaller parts in movies I mean I grew up kind of loving people like Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton so I'd kind of like to do more of that stuff and um, yeah it's, it's almost kind of just as hard to get those as, as it is kind of bigger parts because you know people you know, we'll think, oh, yeah, you won't want to play a smaller part or, you know, they just won't think of you for it. But, yeah, I really love parts like that just because it's a great way to kind of be on a set and not have it all riding on you or be working in every scene. And uh, I've always kind of enjoyed that. Well, you know, big fan of those guys, too. I mean, yeah. Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton. I mean, whenever they show up, you always know it's going to be good. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it's great to hear that, you know, you're working on a few a few projects with your brothers again. And yeah. Were those the ones that you were referencing that you were trying to, to get together? Yeah, those are, yeah, I would direct this prison love movie with Andrew, Owen will act in it. And, um, yeah, and then Andrew and I directed Satellite Beach together. And, um, yeah, just figure, you know, it's kind of a waste to not work together, especially, you know, while while we're young, as they say. Does being in, you know, movies that do relatively well, like old school and stuff like that, does that open the door for you to be able to get people to give you the money to do the smaller things, or is it still Yeah, a I mean, it's still incredibly hard. It's, you know, harder for some people than it is for others. But, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely, it's yeah, very, very difficult to find money. And then, you know, with, with that and then the business changing and, you know, it's, yeah, things are, yeah, it's, in a good way, the, the the business is always changing, and uh, but yeah, sometimes it's difficult to make stuff to, to get stuff made. That's why it was kind of fun to just do the short film and, and not have to kind of wait around for notes or money or cast or anything like that. Great to catch up with you. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Thanks for so taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Take care. Okay, bye. Welcome back. Thanks to Luke Wilson for coming on the show. You can find out more about him and his work, including a link to pick up your copy of Idiocracy over at our website, projection-booth.com. So there's a lot of stuff that's been written about Idiocracy over the years. We're not the only people to kind of pick up on this whole idea of some of it is uh, coming true as we go along. But uh, one article that really kind of caught my eye was this whole idea of you are a, uh, a horrible person for liking Idiocracy. What is it? Uh, Idiocracy is a cruel movie and you should be ashamed to like it by matt novak who i tweeted at and tried to get him on the show because i would have loved to 
have him kind of talk with us about why we're horrible people for liking this movie, even though I can read it. You can't read what? No, I said even though I can read what he wrote, I still think it would have been good to have him on and sort of debate him on the points. And I think one of the big points is, as Jeff brings up, is the eugenics thing, like is the the opening, and he found that really really poor uh, taste and really bad commentary. Well, I wonder if this guy gets offended by the Darwin Awards. I mean, the Darwin Awards, they give out every year to basically the dumbest people um, on Earth, really. Who kill themselves. Exactly. (laughs) And to me, I absolutely love the Darwin Awards, but... it's this whole idea of uh, you know natural selection and the survival of the fittest, and in this case, the survival of the smart over people that do really stupid things and really shouldn't be allowed to live afterwards. Again, I mean, I have to go back to this point: is you can't take that literally. This is not a scientific trust trustee. This is not you know anti-intellectualism in American life. This is a two-minute setup for a farcical dystopian comedy. I mean, if if you wanted to. If Mike Judge had wanted to do a more serious treatment of why he thinks people are getting dumber and talk about cultural influences and, you know, poor decision making and uh, all all that, it it would have put an audience to sleep. And so to sort of do the eugenics version of that quick and dirty was one both very funny in his uh, execution, but also made the point and allowed the story to begin. The, the one thing that he writes in here, the, the guy who wrote this piece about how it's a cruel movie and you should be ashamed for liking it, he even goes one further and says, look, I'm not arguing that the world hasn't changed in some ways and that that brief period of enlightenment that existed before you were born, nor am I arguing that the media we consume doesn't matter. It does insofar as that it can influence how we see the world. But the great irony of a film like Idiocracy is that if we take the film to its logical conclusion, 99% of Americans should be sterilized. And if you spent 90 minutes watching this movie instead of studying quantum mechanics or something that probably includes you right but i don't think anyone expects uh a comedy to be taken to its logical conclusion i mean that's that sort of <laughs> failure of, of logic here i mean it's you know and it, nor do i think it necessarily means you know we talked a little bit about the ending where frito had 30 kids and joe had three it's like it's not so much that everyone has to be smarter but it's sort of deference giving deference to smart people on topics of which they're subjects which we seem increasingly have a difficult time doing as a society and so the hopeful part of the end of the movie was like well they elected joe president because they realized he was smarter he could figure some of this stuff out yeah so i to sort of take this sort of pedantic approach where we'll take into its logical conclusion well i mean take take any comedy to its logical conclusion and you know you get to an awful place because it's a comedy it's pretty bad. I mean, to be president, intelligence really doesn't play into it that much. I mean, it plays in some, but so much of it is how well-spoken you are, how photogenic you are. I mean, we could have the smartest guy, but if he's ugly or if he can't speak uh, very well in front of an audience, he's not going to be the president. So it's just like, you know, I don't necessarily look at the office of the presidency as this is a really super smart person who I should just be impressed to hell with, or just even this is a great person that I should be impressed to hell with. I mean, there have been presidents, you know, within my lifetime where I'm just like, I bet you I'm smarter than this guy. And I really don't like thinking that the person who's running the country is dumber than I am. 
because I'm not a smart man, Jenny, but I'd make a good husband. <laughs> you know what love is. <laughs> yeah, let's take Forrest Gump to its logical conclusion. This sort of mentally challenged, you know, person stumbles through life like this. I mean, actually, what happened in Forrest Gump, if it were to happen in real life, is really kind of horrific. That this guy who's no that doesn't have the cognitive abilities to comprehend going to war, falling in love, having children but managed to do all these things and somehow do them well. I mean, it, to apply the sort of paleo future uh, approach to, to that movie, that becomes awful too. But I don't think anyone thinks of Forrest Gump as, as an awful movie. It's kind of a heartwarming story. I do. I think that I, also I, I think it's, okay. <laughs> I, I've talked about it many times, how to me, the, uh, the, the Jenny character who is the agitator gets AIDS and dies and suffers while Forrest, who's oblivious to everything gets through life and everything's wonderful for him. So what is it telling us? Don't rock the boat. That's right. Don't rock the boat. Kids go along with everything and it'll all be okay. No, it's it, like I said, if, if you want to push, push these things to its logical conclusion. Yeah. I, I don't know. For some reason that movie's always me the wrong way i'm sorry well you've given it certainly more thought than i have <laughs> Fourth Gump, i mean it's yes 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 <laughs> so but beyond this you're a terrible person uh, you're a terrible person for liking idiocracy there's been a lot written on how idiocracy has basically is becoming more and more a documentary <laughs> Each year passes, and uh, Rolling Stone has a piece on it, and then there's also a piece from uh, this site called Uprocks that says that uh, let's examine the many ways Mike judges idiocracy is nearly upon us. The whole thing, the first one that he goes into is the eugenics piece at the beginning, saying that a new study indicates that we've lost 14 IQ points on average since the Victorian era, so... They're saying, okay, there's that. The the ow my balls. I guess actually, I guess there was actually a uh, there was a production company in Japan that was planning such a uh, show that was along similar lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, th- to go back to the IQ thing. I mean, <laughs> there are times where I'm reading books from the Victorian era, and I'm just like, wow. The I don't want to say that they're overwritten. I just want to say that they definitely use language in a much more eloquent way than we do today and it's just um sometimes it's 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 like uh tran- you know translating a different language completely it's still english but there are a lot more things going on than we currently have today and then it also points out the whole thing with de-evolutional language we kind of talked about a little bit uh ads on everything and portion sizes run amok uh the political process and posturing and and then of course the environmentalism aspect so and then as we talked about before that uh brondo you can now buy it uh that's kind of a fun little joke kind of thing and i just imagine it tastes like monster i have not checked it out brondo the thirst mutilator it's like a monster, monster truck you can pour into your face it's got electrolytes what are electrolytes i don't know but they're extremely awesome and brondo is full of them and they help plants grow which is why you should drink brondo and not water because water is from the toilet and i've never seen plants grow out of a toilet it's got caffeine super extra caffeine and five kinds of sugar which makes it delicious and much better than other energy drinks that are not delicious nor have I, and it, it's unlike the, the the other sort of movie products like Stay Puft Marshmallows, which, okay, are marshmallows with a connection to Ghostbusters. I mean, Brondo, just everything about Brondo in the movie makes you think this is the most awful thing. And everything we know about energy drinks, is, they're kind of gross to begin with. 
the idea that anyone would actually want to buy Brondo is kind of remarkable. Yeah, I'd rather have Soylent Green <laughs> than Brondo. Yeah, Brondo r- really reminds me of like Four Loco, you know, and just uh, that alcoholic energy drink where it's like addictive and just gross. You know, I, I just I can imagine the smell of like Monster and uh, Red Bull when I see them, you know, drinking or or showing Brando on uh, Idiocracy, and it just kind of turns my stomach. Kind of syrupy, sticky feeling in your mouth. Just yeah. Never go away in the in the Idiocracy world, because everything is Brando. Idiocracy, as we were saying, kind of owes a little bit of a debt back to other pieces of science fiction, whether it's the, the many uh, movies featuring a black president when everything's in chaos, or, you know, things like that. Time travel film. Uh, Rip Van Winkle kind of idea of waking up, you know, years in the future. And we got a message on our Facebook page from a listener who said that there was a short story from 1951 called The Marching Morons. And uh, that to him, a lot of idiocracy sounds similar to this. And I guess, Mike, you had a chance to kind of look at this. Yeah, I took a look at the story. It's a pretty short story and it's out there. Uh, pretty much public domain. It was published in a uh, Galaxy magazine from the time and uh, reads pretty darn quickly. I almost wish that the author had taken it and made a full book out of it because it seems like there's so many great ideas that they just don't necessarily explore as much as they possibly could. Um, but it's 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 kind of, uh, you know, I keep talking about how Joe in Idiocracy isn't that... Um, sympathetic of a character to me because he is a little dim in this one the guy who wakes up john barlow rather than joe bowers he is uh pretty much a dick he wakes up and sees everything going on as a business opportunity for him he under he quickly finds out that the problem is that the stupid people have pretty much taken over the world. They almost enslave the smart people. The smart people are there to do the repairs and basically make sure that the world doesn't fall into chaos. I mean, you know, looking at the things in idiocracy that are falling apart, you know, going into entropy, these folks would be there to kind of fix them and do all this menial labor that the dumb people are too dumb to do. So this guy, uh, John Barlow, who comes out of hibernation, uh, he basically wants to take over the world, become world dictator, uh, get all the money that they currently have, even though if he is world dictator, money won't matter. Uh, And he comes up with this great idea of selling – he uses – basically modern uh, advertising, modern as of the 1950s, advertising to intrigue people to want to go to Venus. And it's the same idea as there's too many dumb people on Earth, so they want to thin the herd, and they start sending people off to Venus and essentially pretty much know that they're crashing their ships into the moon. (laughs) So they uh, start planting all these ads and uh, the news people start talking about how great it is on Venus and pretty much it starts to trickle through and everybody starts thinking about how great it is to go to Venus and they start sending these ships up and uh, the end of the story is basically that they send this uh, Joe Bar- or sorry, John Barlow up as well just because he is such a pain in the ass and he comes in, he's 
not only is he a jerk to everybody that he meets, but he's even racist. By this time, the world has kind of evolved so much that, you know, people from Africa or are, are um, married to people from Europe and all this kind of stuff. So one of the main characters' names sounds very African. And as soon as he finds out about that, he's like, yeah, I can't work with this guy. I'm a no, I have no problem. You know, I've got plenty of black friends, but I can't work with this guy. And it's like, oh, so when they send him off in the spaceship, it's like, good for you. See, I guess that's kind of why I like the Joe Bowers character is because he seemed like such a genuinely decent human being in this weird future world where no one is decent by any any standard that we would recognize today. And True. As, and as much as, you know, he was smarter than everyone else, he was also just a a much more decent human being than everyone else. You know, he yeah, he empathy. really is just there to help. And I like that, you know, one of his big speeches at the end is, you know, I'm just here trying to help you people. We mean you people. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, you people? <laughs> but, but another thing that comes out of the Marching Morons is uh, actually, I guess, a link to RoboCop. I'm not sure if this is true or not. There is a uh, television program that they're watching at one point, and the catchphrase from the television show is, would you like to buy it for a quarter, or would you buy it for a quarter? And basically, it's the answer to this question that they ask on the, the show. So I'm not sure if that directly led to, I'd buy that for a dollar. But it definitely seems like that same kind of dystopian world that RoboCop is in can kind of be a shared universe with some of these other dystopian films and books and, and stories. So, you know, I've seen other stories out there, or other movies, like there's a one that's like a, a day without a Mexican, which was kind of based on like the world without Jews or something, which was uh, it's set in Vienna. And it was, what if Jewish people weren't around and what would society be like? And that's a little bit more heady than a day without a Mexican, which is where all the white people suddenly have to start doing menial labor <laughs> themselves and find out how shitty it is and how much Mexican people do for the people of California. So, um, yeah, it's definitely in that same kind of idea of um, taking things to that absurdist level uh, just to show us uh, exactly what the what some of these problems are. Well, the other thing that's interesting in looking at the notes on Marching Morons on Wikipedia was that they also linked it to Sleeper, the Woody Allen film. And I love Sleeper, but had not even thought of Sleeper in reference to uh, Idiocracy, although it does make sense because there are similar things with Woody Allen waking up in the future and uh, Big Eyes is coming out soon, so you'll you'll get the joke more nowadays that uh, the Keen paintings are considered you know high art in the future. <laughs> and it was kind of the same thing with uh, going back to the Marching Morons. That was he was put into this kind of comatose state from a dentistry uh, accident. So kind of similar to Woody Allen. He went in for like minor surgery and he got into his coma that way. But the other one that kind of, I, I hadn't even thought about it until I was rewatching Idiocracy for the first time in a couple of years is how, of all things, Wally almost seems like a kid's version of Idiocracy to some extent. I totally can see that. So just to give you a breakdown on Wally, um, in the future, basically everything's covered in garbage. Wally is this little machine, little robot that goes out and cleans up. The mass consumerism is run amok. There's a company called By and Large, which is, I guess, a Costco or a 
you know, uh, Walmart and there's no people around. And he discovers the little robot basically discovers this seedling that's growing and there's no trees. There's nothing like it. Like it's the same thing. There's no plants. The plants aren't growing anymore. And then what he finds out is that there's this ship and on the ship, is all these morbidly obese people who are kind of skating around on these, um, you know, these kind of coasters while they eat and watch TV, and they're totally disconnected from each other. There's no real uh, communication between them. They're all just being consumers, like at the most highest level. And when I saw this movie, I thought, man, this is a, an amazing satire to come out of Disney because it's almost making fun of itself. It's so sort of too smart for its own good. Um, and was, I was just amazed by it when I saw it. And in similar, like I said, in similar ways, you can see connections between Wally and idiocracy and Wally came out uh, two years later, but you know, with these Pixar films, they work on them for like a decade. So I, I serious, I don't seriously think that anyone saw idiocracy and said, that sounds good. Let's, let's use that. It's it's one of those working in the zeitgeist sort of what was around at that time, and I think I think we were all kind of maybe dealing with the anti-intellectualism of the Bush era, the second Bush era, where it seemed like people were willing to elect someone who didn't seem all that intelligent, and you know thinking too much about oh should we really invade that country was uh, not considered a good thing in our our media at the time. Yeah, and I think both Wally and Idiocracy sort of share this idea of uh, a purposeless life that that vacuum is filled by some sort of consumer force the names of the characters and in, in idiocracy all being brand names and the the way that the that mega company and wally was sort of almost worshipped or you were taught to revere it um i mean it's a little bit uh you could even connect it to brave new world and all the suxley and the the way the sort of the model t and, and the ford assembly line became a a religion in that dystopia. Well, I remember the uh, the break-ins with Fred Willard as the CEO of the company, and it almost looked like he was set up like doing a um, presentation, like from the White House or something. It had like like the way the logo on the podium and all that stuff. It almost seemed like maybe there was no government, but this big corporation that now runs everything. That would never happen, Brando. <laughs> I mean, next thing you're going to tell me that like there's going to be a corporation that takes over a large chunk of downtown Detroit and sort of operates it as its own fiefdom. That that would never happen. No, no, because <laughs> it's especially one that just happened to be really engaged in the junk loans and all that, and happened to not smell, you know, like anything bad. Now, see, now you're just talking crazy. I know, I know, <laughs> you're just talking crazy. The uh, the other thing uh, that I thought of, the other movie I thought of that came out. Uh, earlier this year that reminded me of uh, an echo to idiocracy but it's only in like one small part was the lego movie and much like wally for me being uh, a kid's film i thought was very sort of audacious there's a lot of stuff in the lego movie that i think and i'm not going to get into it all here but there's one joke that seems to echo back and forth between idiocracy and the lego movie for me and that is the ow my balls there's a thing in there where the one like one of the most popular TV shows in the Lego movie universe is called Where Are My Pants? Honey, where are my pants? (laughs) (laughs) So that's sort of like the kid version of it. Yeah, I can definitely see that. You know, you were talking about that whole idea of the, the people not being connected and everything. And of course that plays right into like internet culture and stuff. There was a, a, 
story from 1909 that E.M. Forster wrote, the guy who wrote uh, Passage to India, called The Machine Stops. And that is basically people never interacting with, with each other in person, only communicating through, I mean, what could best be described as email, basically, or video phone, because, you know, video phones are also a future thing, like, uh, for the longest time, uh, from the Jetsons and everything. But, uh, yeah, it is so, like, a precursor to the internet. And then I guess that kind of plays into that. There was that movie with Bruce Willis a few years ago called Surrogates, where it was people kind of using like real life, um, well, real life uh, robots, like real life avatars going out into the world. And they can be the beautiful, uh, perfect versions of the people who are basically stuck at home controlling these avatars throughout the day. And that was uh i know that movie didn't get a whole lot of play or anything the the comic book that it was based on was actually better but it's it's a fairly decent movie it's kind of a really good uh double feature with uh what was it called gamer the one with michael c hall i always put michael in there because of his character from uh six feet under but yeah th- those those two make a good double feature so are there any other films or anything else uh, we have left to say about uh, idiocracy gents I'm good. I'm, yeah, me too. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Kidnet Television proudly presents America's favorite kid show host, Rainbow Randall. So you'll make sure my boy dances up front, right? Gets to sit in the chair. You want your little booger eater on my show? Meet Randolph Smiley. He once was rich. He once was famous. And he once was sane. Rainbow Randolph is the man. Yes, oh, yes, he is. They kicked me out of the corporate penthouse. I'm homeless. I can assure you, this network cannot survive another Rainbow Randolph. Don't have a me! Salmonella! Sir, it is my personal mission to find a satisfactory replacement. Get me smoochy. You're telling me that Kidnet is finally ready to pursue a show of smoochy caliber. My body was barely cold, and you went to work for the rhino. I gotta eat, don't I? The only way to take back his career is to take down his replacement. In this jungle, going on safari, safari. Hunting season. What's this? Trust me, Sheldon. It's a handy accessory to have in this business. Never ends. I'm apart now and forever. <laughs> What's up? Robin Williams, Edward Norton, Danny DeVito, Catherine Keener. What does it all mean? Death to Smoochie. That's right, we're back, and we're talking about another satire next week, Death to Smoochie. We'll be joined by the writer Adam Resnick and actor Danny Woodburn, so don't miss that. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest, Luke Wilson, and also our special guest co-host, Jeff Watrick. So, Jeff, what's the latest with you, sir? Oh, not much. Not much. Just, uh, you know, trying to keep keep society from crumbling completely uh, so that uh, my future great-great-great-grandchildren don't have to wake up in uh, the world of President Camacho. 
Yes, I hear that uh, congratulations are in order and will be in order very soon uh, as you add a, another one to the team over there. You and your lovely wife, both, uh, I would say, uh, journalists in the Detroit area in some form. Yep. Thank you. No problem. Always great to hear it. All right. Thanks again, Jeff. We'll have links where people can find out more about Idiocracy and more about you over at our website, projection-booth.com. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to see what we have coming up, visit our Facebook page or download our free app for your smartphone or Kindle Fire. It's free. And remember, welcome to Costco. I love you. Come in, boogie boy. You're late. Have you got the papers that Chinaman gave you? There is, Dad. Is it a surprise? Yes, Boogie. In the past, this information has been suppressed, but now it can be told. Every man, woman, and mutant on this planet shall know the truth about de-evolution. Oh, Dad, we're all
the number one movie in the country was called Ass. And that's all it was for 90 minutes. It won eight Oscars that year, including Best Screenplay. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.